0: Hey, Magic Lantern listeners, there is no opening scene for this particular episode because this is part two of episode 100 and we are devoting this time entirely to answering listener questions.
1: I was told this was going to be a medley of our hits.
0: Maybe for you. Do you have any questions for me before we get started?
1: Yes, I do. How'd you get to be so cute?
0: I just knew you were going to say something bad about my mom when you did that.
1: No. Okay, you
0: ready? Oh, wait,
1: wait, I missed an opportunity. I should have said, jeepers, creepers, how'd you get those peepers?
0: Are you sure you're not trying for some back-end podcast pilot where this becomes an I Love Lucy thing where you try to break into show business through the podcast constantly?
1: Okay, I think Sophia Petrillo said it best. Why wouldn't he let her in the show? She was the best part. It was his show that stunk.
0: I guess that technically counts as you asking me a question. Are you ready?
1: I'm ready. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
0: And I am Cole Lane, and this is a special episode for us, so welcome to Episode 100, Part 2. Since we wanted to make Episode 100 a celebration of the folks that listened to the show, not only did we have listeners pick the movie that we talked about in Part 1, we also asked everyone to contribute any questions that they had about us and the show, And we got some great responses. We're just going to alternate here, picking at random until we get through all of these burning questions from Lantern listeners. Where do you want to start?
1: A question that was not asked of me. Why does my voice sound so weird today? I just came from swim class and my allergies are bothering me.
0: I thought maybe someone wrote in and asked you to do your best Kathleen Turner impression for the show.
1: I wish I could. Let's begin with Jordan Courtney's question. He asked... I'm curious what y'all's prep time and recording time looks like. Do y'all script anything or is it all off the cuff? I'm starting up a pod soon, so I'm interested in other people's processes.
0: We should add that Jordan's podcast that he's talking about is a podcast called Film Shake, and it's awesome, and it's going to be on our new network, the 25th frame, so check that out. He just released his first episode about Ugetsu today, and it's great. And I also wanted to make a note that Brad McDermott asked this same question pretty much, so we're going to roll those two into one here for our answer. So I guess we'll just go through the process from viewing through posting the episode. For the typical episode, for me, it usually goes like this. We'll watch the film in question, and we take rudimentary notes during that, mainly jotting down impressions, things we notice, chronology. And then over the next couple of days, we'll do research and flesh out those notes, my end product usually comes out to be an extensive outline of what are essentially greatly expanded bullet points. I try to think of everything I might want to touch on or that you might be thinking about. Since we have a good feel now for how each other approaches this, if we know we have specific questions for each other ahead of time, we try to share those at least so we can have it in the back of our minds as we work. That outline will loosely follow the chronology of events in the film, but I try to make it modular. It's usually grouped by themes or general focus so I can jump to whatever section I need, depending on what you bring up. Lengthwise, my notes usually run 8 to 10 pages, or between 4,000 to 5,000 words. The Paris, Texas episode was 8 pages and about 4,500 words, for example. So it's not exactly scripted in the traditional sense. When I think scripted, I think of stuff on the ParCast network. But we have thoroughly considered or tried to anticipate anything that we might possibly want to include and have written out at least reminders about those things. Then we see where those pieces fall as we talk and we just shape it further as we go. What you don't hear, the part that gets edited out is the that's a perfect lead into this idea I have, can we go there next? That sort of thing. We don't look at each other's notes beforehand except for knowing that handful of questions, so there are still plenty of surprises for each other and room for spontaneity. Recording sessions for a regular episode usually take about two and a half to three hours, but a lot of that is because we have so much outside noise interference We don't have a soundproof environment. So there's a lot of working around neighbors mowing, airplanes, motorcycles, etc. Once the breaks for that noise is edited out, the actual raw recording ends up to be about an hour and 45 minutes, which I whittle down to the finished hour-long, give or take, show that you hear. And editing and assembly for that takes about six to eight hours. What did I leave out that you do?
1: Sometimes I approach it just a bit differently. Especially with films that I haven't seen before, often your choices, I might do a bit of research ahead of time, just so I give myself some ideas of things that I might want to pay particular attention to. We also sometimes have discussion immediately following about avenues that we're interested in exploring, and then just in terms of the literal process, we are sitting across from each other at a table. So we're looking at each other which I need. I need to look at you sometimes when I'm saying these things. I used to script a bit less than I do now, and script is a loose term. I found that I needed to sometimes make more fully worded, fleshed out sentences to really get my idea across, to try to just be more coherent for myself. And I can safely say that in every single episode, you're going to say something or point something out that I had never thought of you're always going to take me by surprise.
0: And those notes have evolved a lot too. When I look at the first set of notes we made for Rebecca, for instance, going all the way back to episode one, that is handwritten on one side of a sheet of paper and calling it bullet points would be generous. And now it has evolved all the way into a typewritten document that I kind of wish I'd saved. I know we've saved some of the handwritten ones from way back when, but generally every time an episode gets posted and it's safe and I know that the download works, I ditch those notes. After all is said and done, recording-wise, what do you have left that you do?
1: You really do the heavy lifting for each episode. I come in and I make the iMovie that becomes the YouTube version of the episode, but that just takes me a few minutes, let's say 10 to 15 minutes. And then, of course, we're relying on our Wi-Fi here, which then takes roughly 24 hours to upload to YouTube. Also, a thanks to you for doing all of the work that you do, but Also, you got me this super awesome Christmas present. It's a laptop stand. So I have my words in front of me at my eye level so I can look at you and my words. It's pretty great.
0: This isn't some two-bit operation you're talking about here. Yeah, so altogether, on my end at least, for every regular episode between viewing, research, editing, and doing the social media work that comes after, I would say I put in about 20 hours per episode in general.
1: I think mine's more like eight to 10.
0: Maybe you should start carrying your fair share of this business.
1: God, you're just such a whiz at everything, though. You do it so much better than I do.
0: Powerhouse is the word you're looking for.
1: Also, I'm lazy. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Let's go to a question from our friend Andrew Pierce. He asks, what was the film or films that helped you fall in love with non-mainstream cinema?
1: We were chatting about this a little bit before, and it's hard to go back that far in my memory these days. So really, the first one that came to mind, even though this is fairly mainstream, is a room with a view. I saw it when I was about 10 years old, and to me, it was incredibly non-mainstream. It had interstitials. It had nudity in it. And I fell in love with it and its world. It reinforced my anglophilia. So it was a huge thing for me.
0: I would say Merchant Ivory was probably pretty non-mainstream for at least Boise, Idaho in those days.
1: That was Roanoke, Virginia.
0: Ah, okay. Same difference.
1: Yeah, It is, really. (laughs) What about you?
0: I would have to say Gregory's Girl. It's still such a favorite. I feel like it specifically saved me from a life of multiplexes and mainstream cinema. I belong to that generation for whom John Hughes' movies were supposed to be the be-all, end-all depiction of what adolescence is all about, and they just never felt right to me. It felt like such a lie. Like I was being sold a bill of goods and it didn't reflect my experience at all. It felt so slick and streamlined, and I just wasn't having it. Then came Gregory's Girl, and that felt like home. It wasn't in a hurry I didn't feel like it was pandering. It was gentle and true and didn't have the rough edges sanded off, which is the part that I think I really related to the most. It didn't do that dumb thing where it slots characters and then by extension viewers into handy little groups to be easily understood or marketed to. It came at a time when I was looking for something but maybe couldn't even have articulated it, and yet there it was. It was like getting a lovely little gift that said, hey, I know those things people are pushing at you, aren't satisfying you take heart you don't fully understand yet and that's okay but that's not all there is
1: let's go to listener leon huxtable's question specifically because i don't know the answer because i don't understand the question <laughs> okay i need you to explain it to me i get that this is a reference to something but i don't know what it is and the question is where is the love
0: well, leon is our dear friend from melbourne who does the podcast Yaga day, And if you want a regular dose of culture from Down Under, then this is the show for you. And I mention this because this answer has an Australian tie-in.
1: I can't wait to hear more.
0: But on Leon's show, you'll learn about terrifying birds, snacks that you will want to import, bush rangers galore, which is awesome. So give it a listen. But as far as his question, where is the love? For me, first of all, the answer is... It was inside you all along, Leon. <laughs> I assume Leon asks because he is a huge Black Eyed Peas fan. I'm just guessing
1: Oh, that. Lord. I, okay, wait a minute. I do know all the words to Let's Get It Started.
0: And that's what he's referring to. That song, Where's the Love, it only went to number eight on the U.S. charts, but it went all the way to number one in Australia, so it may resonate more with him than us. I'm more of a B-sides guy anyway, and I would just like to mention that the B-side to this song was a song called Something For That Ass.
1: <laughs> that does sound like a lantern favorite.
0: That went to number one in the Republic of Coal. So to sum up, I would like to answer his musical question with another musical question. Now that we found love, what are we going to do?
1: Can I work an Andy Kim reference in here <laughs> somehow? Is that possible?
0: You could probably work an Andy Kim reference into anything you want.
1: Boy, I am really pitching us old this time, right?
0: I don't know what this us stuff
1: is.
0: (laughs) Well, since you're steering us that way already, here's one that the oldies will understand, and hopefully this question will really hit them where they live. This question is from our friend Aaron West, and he asks, What lost film or print would make you jump for joy if found?
1: This is definitely not a question for me. I am the worst person to ask because I am not keyed into what's lost in general. So whenever you tell me something's been discovered, I think, oh, that's great. But I'm going to go with just my first thought, and that's because it's something we watched very recently, and that's Love from a Stranger. It apparently is only in the public domain, and I like it a lot, and I wish that there was a nice print of it. Does that count?
0: sure your show you can make it whatever you want (laughs) i usually do i agree though that print that we watched not too long ago it looks terrible it looks like the most sixth seventh generation degraded dub of anything that i've ever seen which is too bad because that film has a really neat ending that i think mystery fans agatha christie fans would love to see that film if they knew that it was out there and especially if it was in good condition There are a few for me, and I know this one is probably on your radar. You'll recognize the name when I mention it. Todd Browning's London After Midnight with Lon Chaney is obviously high on any horror fan's list. That one seems to come up any time this conversation is had. I've seen the version that Turner Classic reconstructed with stills in the original script. Did you get to see that? No, I haven't
1: seen it at all.
0: I'm glad they did that, but what a thrill it would be to see Chaney skulking around in that makeup in action. I've had images of that dancing around in my head since second grade when I ordered a weekly reader book club about classic horror movies. That image has just been burned into my brain for decades now. Aside from that big one, which is one that, you know, is very common, I have a few that might be a little more off the beaten path. There are a couple, actually. Batman Fights Dracula, which was made in the Philippines with absolutely no input and especially no approval from DC Comics. I think it would be the holy grail for a label like Mondo Macabro to get, but I know that there's just no way they could release it with all the rights entanglements that would come up with DC. It seems impossible, so it's very much one of those, hopefully somewhere on the gray market, I'll find one one day. And the other one that I would like to see is called Convention City. Even with Dick Powell in it, I want to see it. That makes it rich and rare.
1: (laughs) That's got to be a big deal, yeah.
0: This is a pre-code sex comedy, and it's directed by Archie Mayo with one of your favorites, Joan Blondell... It also stars Adolf Minju and Mary Astor, and it was a real victim of the Hayes Code. It was made just as all that was looming on the horizon, and rather than go through a protracted battle over it, Jack L. Warner ordered all copies of it destroyed. It was reputed to be pretty saucy.
1: I'm a little shocked, though, because I can't imagine you would want to see Dick Powell even saucier or smugger than he normally is, and he probably sings in it.
0: Well, I'll give you a line of dialogue that balances all that out for me. Here's just one sample. Now you take off that dress and I'll take off my toupee. <laughs> I actually have hopes that this will turn up eventually as it was circulated widely originally and it wasn't destroyed until relatively late in the game, 1936. So it's probably out there in a basement or an attic somewhere.
1: This next question is from friend of the show and podcaster Travis Trudell. What film would you want to go back in time and experience with an audience for the first time?
0: It wouldn't be so much one particular film as an experience. I want to go back in time to the brief heyday of The Midnight Spook Show. These were basically traveling magicians that would rent a theater to put on a horror-themed magic show and it had girls and ghosts and gorillas, and then they would show an appropriately themed movie along with it. But the movie is almost incidental in that situation. There are a number of great choices you could make, though. The original Frankenstein would be great. Any Atomic Age creature feature. The original House of Wax in 3D. I just want to be in that amped up crowd of juvenile delinquents when they drop the fake spiders on everybody. Or a monster runs out into the audience and carries off the person sitting next to you, who was obviously a plant. But still, it seems super fun. What about you?
1: I picked kind of a similar thing. I want some gimmicks. And so I picked two ideas. Earthquake. And then, female trouble. <laughs> I want seats to shake, and I want the theater to stink.
0: When we open our own theater, is that going to be our tagline?
1: <laughs> yes, Plus $12 popcorn. But it's really good.
0: This one comes from our friend Jane Sankner, and she asks, Which film or filmmaker have you had the most challenging time convincing others to embrace?
1: Besides the spy who dumped me, I really look at life as... Kind of before you and after you. My entire life before you was convincing anyone to watch anything. I once had a terrible date where the guy didn't get the goodbye girl. Enough said.
0: Deal breaker.
1: Yep. Nowadays, I just typically don't bring up film in general, especially at work as I tend to get blank stares and it's just kind of terrible and disheartening. So instead, I'll flip the answer and say that my mom had the toughest time convincing me to embrace the Quiet Man. I never embraced Roy Rogers, by the way.
0: I was going to ask about that. If you ever went down the Gina Autry-Roy Rogers path the way she wanted you to.
1: Ugh, never. Not for lack of trying.
0: Did she ever try Zorro? It seems like that would have been super fun for a kid.
1: I don't remember much Zorro, no.
0: Well, this is kind of a tough one for me to answer, too, and it's similar conditions to you. It's mainly because of the way we go about things now. I don't proselytize in person the way that I might once have. So if I've actively tried to convince someone to try something in a one-on-one setting, it's been years. You may be the only one that's borne the brunt of that for a long time, and that's mostly, look at this video of this kid hitting our brother in the head with a ball.
1: Or lots of cysts.
0: <laughs> there are those. But our show functions for me that way now. And the movie nights that we host as well. That is our missionary work. But we don't often get people pushing back or actively resisting that. If anything, they just ignore it and we don't get feedback. If I had to reach for one current example, I would say Pedro Costa. He's a filmmaker that I have a great deal of admiration for. And I think he's an important voice. And I pick him to answer this question because he's still such a challenge for me. We took some friends to see Horse Money. And I still can't quite put my finger on how I feel about that film, and that was almost three years ago.
1: And I still think about it from time to time.
0: I do too. I've thought about it a lot since then. It definitely made an impression. But I think every one of us that went to that walked out of that screening feeling unsettled or dissatisfied somehow. Not that it was a bad film, but maybe I raised expectations too high or created an atmosphere prior to the screening that had us in the wrong headspace. Did you feel that way when we left?
1: I do, but that part's gone away, and so it's continued to stay with me, which I think says something more than our initial reactions.
0: I wish we'd all just sat down and talked about it at length right then. Maybe I'd feel differently about it now, but that's the last significant time I can remember really pushing a film that didn't land the way I wanted it to.
1: If I remember correctly, if memory serves, we were there for at least a half hour talking about it. So did you want us to stay overnight and keep discussing it? Go on a camping trip?
0: Did we say that long? That's just the usual time we frame did. for me. So, yeah, I guess I needed two hours maybe. Yeah. I guess the other thing that all of this says is that for years now, my friends have been pretty open-minded and trusting. I don't feel like it's a challenge or that I have to convince them to watch anything. So I'm really lucky in that regard. They'll go out on a cinematic limb for me anytime, I feel like. So thanks to them for that.
1: This question is from Jordan Courtney, and he's wondering, what are the things that make you turn off a show?
0: The things that make me turn off a podcast are typically centered on the amount of effort that it seems that people put in, especially if a show makes any claim to being any sort of authority, keeping it just within our area of specialty. If someone puts out a show in which they call themselves a cinephile, It's just a cardinal sin to me if they haven't done their research. If you give the distinct impression that you haven't seen any films, say, from before the year you were born, I'm going to wonder how much of an authority you can be about anything. If you purport to be a semi-professional cinephile broadcaster, you should never have moments of, Oh, that guy who's in that thing, I don't remember his name or what else he's in. Even if you don't have encyclopedic knowledge in your head of someone's career, Google takes five seconds beforehand. Laziness is just lame. I also have very little patience for snark as a way of life. Grow up is all I have to say. Using irony as a way to not have to be honest about your emotions seems like such a waste of time. Basically, if a show has good content and the hosts are enthusiastic and sincere, I can forgive a lot, especially sound issues. Also... Saying like every third word certainly doesn't help your chances.
1: The list is identical for me, and then I would just add people who seem like they hate themselves or another person or whatever it is that they're talking about. I especially can't stand this is just a pet peeve in general with anything that I watch. I don't like it when people who are in a relationship clearly despise each other. Why are they in the same room together doing this thing? Now, those are few and far between, and I might give them five minutes and then never come back. But otherwise, I'm with you. If somebody puts in a sincere effort, likes what they're doing, and is excited to share it with other people, I'm with you. And of course, no vocal fry, please.
0: That's going to be very controversial.
1: I know what you mean.
0: (laughs) Also, don't eat on the microphone. Let's go back to Travis Trudell for this one. He asks, besides my African cinema journey, which is one of my resolutions for this year, what other areas of film would you like to explore more deeply?
1: Personally, more avant-garde and experimental work. And then I'm also focusing this year on more female filmmakers and more Asian cinema, which has been absolutely wonderful so far.
0: For me, it would be the Middle East and Mexico. They have similar hindrances as the African film industry. There's a lack of filmmaking infrastructure relative to other places. There are distribution issues. There are also major difficulties regarding censorship in the Middle East that further complicates things. Some of my favorite films come from those two regions. Buñuel's Mexican films. The Golden Age of Mexican Horror in the 50s and 60s is amazing. Abbas Kiarostami is a favorite. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia is a masterpiece. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, so I know just enough to know that there's so much more to know. Asghar Farhadi would probably be the next place I would go. About Ellie and the Separation are both fantastic, and his films are easier to get than most Iranian directors. Beyond some of the bigger names in both places, though, it might take a bit of extra work to get the titles I want, but those two regions would be next on my geographical list.
1: Okay, think fast. Travis asks, if you were on a crew, what would your specialty be? Knives? Demolition? Face man?
0: Duh, mastermind. Do you think I don't have this job planned down to the nth degree? If you just stick to the plan, we're going to be lounging on a beach in non-extradition territory this time tomorrow in a hammock made of million dollar bills drinking juice straight from the pineapple. What about you?
1: This one is too easy. It's Wheelman. I watch way too much Top Gear. I drive way too fast to have any other job.
0: Now, wait a minute. Is this because you are a demon behind the wheel or because you get carsick when you're in any seat but the driver's seat?
1: Both.
0: Because no one wants to have to pull over mid-pursuit so you can throw up.
1: I just roll down the window and do it.
0: (laughs) Well, what's your heist jam? What song do you put on a la Baby Driver when it's time to go to work?
1: Crap, now all I can think of is let's get it started by the Black Eyed Peas.
0: (laughs) I don't want to be on your crew. (laughs) Okay, Andrew asks another question. What was the film that challenged the concept of cinema for you the most? Not the most challenging film, but the film that pushed your idea of what cinema could and should be to its boundaries.
1: The first film I remember that happening to me was with Heathers. I hadn't really experienced a full-length film. I distinguish this from, you know, bits and pieces that I might have seen on television that looked different and acted different. And also that had a nonconformist ending. I was 12 at the time, so it was a big deal. And I refused to speak to anyone on the way home from the theater. <laughs> you
0: are such a brat. For me, that would have to be Tetsuo the Iron Man. I saw it when I was 19, and I just did not know what to make of this, but I knew I liked it. It was the most low-budget, high-ambition thing that I think I had encountered up to that point. It really did show me that you didn't have to follow any rules the way I had thought of them up to that point. It blew all of that up in a literal hail of shrapnel. Everything about it is just so over the top and outlandish. It's perversity, it's humor, it just defies all description. I just really had no frame of reference to understand it. It challenged my idea of what cinema was so much that I had to actively work to reset my boundaries to make room for this film to be included. It's one of those profound experiences where you could almost physically feel your brain changing shape. It's not growth exactly. With this film, I felt more like I was mutating. I made myself sit down and watch it multiple times instead of giving up on it. And I feel like I came out the other side a different person with a much greater understanding of what was possible on screen. So I owe it an immense debt for that.
1: Aaron asks, if you could meet and interview one living filmmaker, who would it be?
0: This seems like it should be hard, but this is really easy for me to narrow down currently. It would be Barry Jenkins without a doubt. It may seem a little counterintuitive to not choose one of my Mount Rushmore people or someone influential with a huge filmography like Alfred Hitchcock. I'm thinking more in terms of who do I actually want to sit down and talk to? Who do I want to be across the table from? And I can't think of anyone with whom that would be more enjoyable than Barry Jenkins. I just love his enthusiasm for cinema. I've often been confounded by filmmakers that say they don't watch movies or musicians that don't go out of their way to listen to music. I am coming at this from the perspective of having been a lifelong fan of those things and being inspired by that to get involved. And I feel that from him, too. On top of that, everything I have ever seen from the guy seems like he's honest, helpful, and generous with his time. He's constantly building up other filmmakers, amplifying their voices, and working towards a more diverse and inclusive cinema. Plus, he makes great movies. I imagine when that interview was over, I would walk away from that table feeling very happy and inspired. So that's what I'm shooting for. What about you?
1: My answer also took two seconds to come up with. I met Spike Lee when I was 16 years old. By meat, I mean I went up to him in a restaurant and told him I was a fan, and he gave me an autograph. I still have it. I'd like to meet him now to tell him what that meant to me, and to hug him if he'd let me. And then we would have a week-long interview and be best friends.
0: Well, since it seems we're going down the road of influences, back to Travis for this one. If you could make a film of your own, what would be your focus, theme, or passion that you would like to explore about yourselves?
1: I have written one terrible screenplay. And it was about a kind of drive-by hit of a relationship. And it's terrible. Did I mention that it's terrible? Because it's terrible.
0: It's literally somewhere in this house?
1: No. <laughs>
0: you have to let me read this thing.
1: Nope. So I think I exercised that from my body. But really, I do have an interest. If I could, I would adapt Agatha Christie's The Tuesday Club Murders, because I think that would make a great episodic series.
0: If I am to be included in this project, what role do I play in this?
1: Raymond West.
0: That means literally nothing to me, but I'll take your word for it. Why would I be Raymond West?
1: He's the first one that occurred to me, because I can't think of you in the other characters, but you do seem like you would bring off a good Raymond West. That's a deep cut for all my Agatha Christie pals out there.
0: Well, I think we should make a road movie, without a doubt. A reluctant buddy comedy, something in the vein of Midnight Run. We put you in the worst wig we can find, we bond over our shared adventure, and get married at the end. We can call it Twice Baked. (laughs) for no particular reason other than the words sound funny to me. It'll be a big hit, it'll spawn a bunch of sequels, and we can take those international the way they cashed in on Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. But I'm a little torn about how we go with the sequel titles. Do we do Thrice Baked? Do we do instead, wherever we go, Bonjour, Twice Baked, Hola, Twice Baked? Which one sounds better?
1: Twice baked it. Um... Yeah. Twice
0: Baked Two, The Baconing?
1: Carry On Twice Baking? Oh,
0: perfect. Yes.
1: I think that means we get to go through Idaho on one of the trips, right?
0: That's where we start.
1: Or is it completely unrelated and then everyone just can't figure out what's going on?
0: Oh, no. J.R. Simplot is the villain in this picture.
1: He's the villain in every picture.
0: Okay, I'm serious about the road movie part, though. At this point in my life, I think I'm beyond startling revelations, so I think it would probably be something more like the trip where we could go to cool places and eat great food and you could do your Michael Caine impersonation. I just want to get out and go and have the time of my life with you and just accidentally we put it on film and get paid for it.
1: Back to Andrew with this one. Who are your Mount Rushmore of filmmakers?
0: That would be Werner Herzog, Chantal Ackerman, John Cassavetes, and Robert Altman. It's basically my eternal monument to emotional turmoil. There really is no filmmaker more important to me than John Cassavetes. We just don't have American independent cinema the way we know it without him. It's more than that, though. It's his working method and the impact that he has on people that really gets to me. It's family. It's not just an acting job. We're going to plumb the depths. We're going to reach magnificent heights. It's going to be goddamn difficult, but we're going to do it together and never forget what we learned from it. I pick Chantal Ackerman because she makes me look, look again And then look even closer still. She forces me to focus so much that after I think I've seen everything there is to see, then gotten bored, then maybe even gotten frustrated, she's still there with her gaze locked saying, look, now do you see it? And she's right every time. Every time her perseverance shows me something that I missed or neglected. Robert Altman is there for his beautiful, sprawling, overlapping messiness. There's nothing clean or neat about this big American crazy quilt of his filmography, and I love it for that. Does your reach exceed your grasp sometimes? Who cares? You don't make great art by playing it safe. And finally, Werner Herzog is there because if anyone deserves to be appropriately enshrined in granite on the face of a mountain, it's him. I truly love this man and the films that he's given us. He is on an endless quest for knowledge, so unyielding and magnificent. (laughs) What better face to have up there, eternally staring down the ravages of time and the elements? What about you?
1: Thank you for a couple of those because I can now sub them off of mine so I can <laughs> get more. I think my initial list had maybe 12 people on it, and then I realized, oh crap, it's Mount Rushmore. I only get four.
0: Somewhere along the lines, are you going to try to sneak in a crazy horse?
1: No, I'm not doing anything sneaky. After much struggle, I'm going to go with Claire Denis. Richard Linkletter, Frederick Wiseman, and Hirokazu Koreeda. I didn't really go into a ton of detail here. Claire Denis has made beautiful films, one of which has become my new favorite thing that I just saw a month ago. Everything I see of hers becomes my new favorite thing. Richard Linkletter, the person who makes Boyhood and the Before Trilogy, those things will live in my memory forever, making my life better. Frederick Wiseman, it was a difficult decision to pick my favorite documentarian, but every single thing he does changes my life. And then finally, Corieta has made possibly my favorite film-going experience of the last 10 years.
0: That's a pretty good list, actually. I mean, that's four that you cannot quibble with, for sure.
1: Do you want me to tell you who my backups are?
0: Sure. Who are your alternates?
1: Tarkovsky. Okay. Lubitsch. Martell. Lee. Seidelman, Herzog was on there. Bill Morrison, I really Mm -hmm. had to struggle. Hitchcock.
0: It's kind of ironic, actually, that Hitchcock is not up there, considering North by Northwest.
1: He already made his mark. (laughs) Okay. We still have got some more questions, right?
0: Yeah, we still have a few to go. Let's go back to Travis for this one. And this is appropriate since we were just talking about two of these people that he mentions. Travis asks, Fuck, marry, kill. We're going to play this game, and our choices are Werner Herzog, Alfred Hitchcock, and a Pitchapong Wear cool. I want you to tell me your order first before you tell me your reasoning because I think our order is going to be the exact same.
1: Okay, let's see. Mary Herzog, fuck Wear cool and kill Hitchcock.
0: Exactly the same.
1: Yeah, it was too easy almost. Okay, but here's my reasoning Mary Herzog. Obviously, because I want to talk to him every day. I want to hear his soothing voice every moment before I go to sleep. I think Wereceticul would be incredibly spiritually enlightening, so I go with fuck him. And then, of course, kill Hitchcock. I would trick him into helping me plan his own murder and plan the filming of it.
0: Interesting. We arrived at the same order, but for drastically different reasons, I feel like. Out of these three, I would definitely have sex with Wereceticul because I know that he would take his time. That dude is in no hurry, and I would appreciate not being rushed. Plus, there might be ghosts involved.
1: Or a catfish.
0: That's more your thing than mine. <laughs> Herzog, he's been married three times. You have to have someone who shares your worldview, so I think it would be perfect. <laughs> he says, it has somehow been harsh to live with me. I'd do it just because I know that he would write his own vows. I really want to hear what those would be.
1: I'm just imagining both of you getting shot by a stray bullet like that time (laughs) on the interview and then both performing your own surgery.
0: That would be our honeymoon. Standing at the altar, what I imagine is that he reaches into his pocket and pulls out the tiniest piece of paper you could possibly write this on and (laughs) unfolds it and says, Civilization is like a thin layer of ice upon a deep ocean of chaos and darkness. Matrimony gives me no comfort and still I embrace it.
1: God.
0: So that leaves Hitchcock to be killed. He's got it coming, right? As I did it, I don't know exactly how I would do it, but as I did it, I would look deep in his beady little eyes and tell him that this is for Tippy Hedren.
1: Next, from Jesse Dampolo, what are the first films you both remember being your favorite films of all time?
0: This one is super easy. The first one I remember being that galvanizing was Hold That Ghost with Abbott and Costello. That's the one I would pick Because my first experience with it was so perfect. And I do still find the movie entertaining today. It was in grade school. I was around 8 years old. And our school routinely had movie days as an assembly. Where they would take us all into the darkened cafeteria. And we would sit in those hard little plastic chairs and watch cartoons and classics mainly. This is the one that sticks out though. I was sitting in the back. Still my favorite place to sit. So I also got to hear the projector noise. We were doing this instead of having class, so that's great. I'm sure there were graham cracker snacks involved. It was magical. That movie introduced me to old dark houses, too, as a concept, before I even knew what that was. So if I had to pick one viewing that started me on this path, this is ground zero for Lil Cole. It remains one of my top five moviegoing experiences of my entire life. What about you?
1: I picked the one where, when I saw it, I said... This is my favorite movie, and that was Say Anything. It just changed my life at that point. I wouldn't say that again until The Matrix.
0: Is this the origin story of Twice Baked that we're talking about now?
1: That does seem pretty reasonable. (laughs) I was also massively into The Sound of Music and Jaws when I was a little kid.
0: Okay, we're going to go back to Travis one last time. And Travis asks, if you were teaching a college course on film... What would be the focus and the title of the class?
1: I almost went down this route because I'm so interested in history and film. There's a book I love called Past Imperfect. It's History According to the Movies. You got a copy for me because you knew that I loved it. I would love to turn that into a small class that I then teach for the next 50 years.
0: This was probably the toughest question for me out of all these, by the way. Was one of these harder for you to answer than the others for some reason?
1: this was easy for me. The one that we're going to come to last ended up being my toughest.
0: I think the psychological hurdle that I face with this is what do I feel qualified to teach? So if it was a survey class, it would probably be something like the 70s is the best decade for movies because that's where I'm from. Or if it was something more focused, it would be something along the lines of Elliot Gould and the Brooklyn Jewish Diaspora. (laughs) I love Elliot Gould. So it would give me a chance to talk a lot about him. And then when I tack on that faux academic subtitle, that widens the scope a little bit. So I can throw in Harvey Keitel, Joan Rivers, Richard Dreyfuss, Eli Wallach, B. Arthur, Mel Brooks, Michael Lerner. You tell me that wouldn't be a super fun class.
1: I want to come. Can I be your T.A.?
0: I will make super secret office hours just for you, and you'll probably get me kicked out of this joint.
1: Now we come to the final question, and I think it's a doozy. This is from Jacqueline Gianaris. Which roles would you like to have seen cast with different actors?
0: I wanted to approach this a couple of ways, so we can make sure and cover what she might have been asking. I still might miss it, but at least we're going to do two versions of this question. First thinking of who might improve a film in one way or another. And then I want to dreamcast a little bit, something like we did during our Raiders of the Lost Ark episode, where we take a film and put it in a different time, but with a contemporaneous cast. Starting from just the standpoint of someone being miscast, I immediately think of anything Leonardo DiCaprio is supposed to be playing anything other than a boy. Did you see Shutter Island?
1: No, no, I just read the book
0: it's like me at five years old when I used to go to the closet and put on my dad's coat and flop around in his boots and play grown-up. All he's missing to complete the look is my cowboy hat and my stuffed monkey to drag around. And it will always be that way with him no matter how old he gets. Someone similar to me but a little less obvious though I think might be John Malkovich. He is someone that I think is a fantastic actor but gets miscast all the time. Particularly with this most recent incarnation of Hercule Poirot or when he was Lenny and Of Mice and Men, there's always something behind those eyes that makes me just not believe that. But if we're thinking of a whole film instead of just a single performer, I have to say Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, obviously. Winona and Keanu are obviously the biggest stumbling blocks there, but Monica Bellucci is essentially the only one I would keep. Maybe Richard E. Grant. It just didn't work for me. I like Gary Oldman a lot, but can you imagine how good it would be if we replaced him with Daniel Day-Lewis? This was 1992. This was around Last of the Mohicans era, Daniel Day-Lewis. So you've got that aquiline nose. You've got that imposing figure. As much as I love him, Renfield is not supposed to be as robust as Tom Waits is. I would replace him with Alan Cumming. Or maybe even Rick Mayall if you wanted to lean into the comic relief of that part a little bit. I would replace Winona with Kate Winslet. I would replace Keanu with literally anyone. Jerk. You're just jealous. You would be less miscast in that role than he is.
1: I could do pretty well in that part, I have to
0: say. Seriously, though, Jonathan Harker should be a little more slight and bloodless, ineffectual, just in a different way, not in a surfer way.
1: (laughs) Not in a surfer way.
0: So Hugh Grant, maybe, is the first person that springs to mind. And I know Keanu gets a lot of grief for this, but Cary Elways is just as bad as him in this and a number of other things. I'm putting that on the record right now. So replace him with Martin Kemp or Gary Kemp or any other member of Spandau Ballet that you want to put in there. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins is always good, but I want a Van Helsing that's not so free and easy as he was in that.
1: I'm going to put Werner Herzog in it.
0: I think you'll like this suggestion. Van Helsing needs to have experience but I need him to have a little bit of that Prussian stiffness too, which I think is what you're angling for with Herzog. To show that resolve, I want Armin Müller-Stahl for that role.
1: That seems like a good way to go. I thought you were going to say Rip Taylor.
0: <laughs> Armin Müller-Stahl still has that glint in his eye that tells you that he's daring enough to drive that stake when the chips are down, but he wouldn't be so devil-may-care the rest of the time. And last but not least... I'm giving Francis Ford Coppola the boot, too, while I'm doing this, because he's more responsible than anyone for this mess. So he has got to go. I say, 1992, give Ken Russell a crack at it. You've seen The Devils. Can you imagine an adaptation of Dracula that's that good?
1: Now you make me want to see Oliver Reed in every single part. somewhere. So how about the dream casting part?
0: As far as taking a film into a time other than its own, I think it would be really fun to see a Golden Age version of Lord of the Rings. I know that cast is huge, so I won't do them all, but there are some things I would definitely like to see. Errol Flynn as Boromir. I know people would say immediately make him Aragorn because of the Robin Hood comparisons, but Errol Flynn is a corrupted hunk, not a pure-hearted hunk. William Powell plays Aragorn in my version of this. I'm
1: struggling to remember who any of the characters are, so I'm just going to go with whatever you're saying.
0: Okay, I'll draw the parallels. Sean Bean, Errol Flynn. Okay. William Powell, sub him out for Vigo Mortensen.
1: That seems a little bit like a stretch, but okay.
0: Trust me, he's got a heart so pure that he is going to make the right decision when everything goes wrong. Got it. Peter Laurie plays Gollum.
1: <laughs> That's great.
0: Veronica Lake would be Galadriel, the Kate Blanchett part. Okay. Orson Welles, as fucking Gandalf.
1: Ooh.
0: Freddie Bartholomew as Frodo. Sounds good. Mickey Rooney as Sam. Okay. Charles Lawton as Gimli, the dwarf.
1: Ooh.
0: Frederick March is the elven archer Legolas.
1: That sounds pretty great.
0: Michael Redgrave subs for Hugo Weaving as Elrond. And then Carol Lombard as Eowyn, the Miranda Otto role. Those are my definites.
1: Great. Perfect.
0: Okay. How about you? How do you bring this home?
1: I think I went Erica Long all over this. So (laughs) I'm sorry in advance, Jacqueline, if I got it wrong. It was almost just too big to grasp. I kind of needed a starting point, but I kept thinking about it, and I came up with the following. I sort of approached it the same way you did at the beginning. Any movie where I can sub out Michael Pitt or Mark Wahlberg would be great, but really just any movie that I could think of where I could put in Kate McKinnon or Melissa McCarthy in every single role, (laughs) I'm on board. So I'm going to move on to my dream casting, and I've got two of them, so you have to bear with me. The first is because we were just talking about all the variations of Miss Marple. So I want to see the Snoop sisters today, and I want Loretta Devine and C.C.H. Pounder to play the sisters, Regina King is their niece, who is also their cop liaison, and Octavia Spencer, Whoopi Goldberg, and Debbie Allen all need to be their cousins at some point. I want to see some Awesome, mature ladies bringing some verve and zest to those roles. So then, for heavy drama, this is just for you. Okay.
0: (laughs) I love the look in your eye right now. Yeah.
1: We're making an adaptation of Abducted in Plain Sight. Oh my god. Yep. This is going to be a free-for-all for the audience, basically. You can shout at the screen. Adult Jan is going to be played by the actual Jan Broberg, because she is an actress. And young Jan is going to be played by Quavangene Wallace from Beasts of the Southern Wild, as I think she's just the most talented young actress. I also couldn't think of a ton, to be honest. And she came to mind immediately, though.
0: So this is almost going to be like a Todd Salon's palindrums thing, where you never know who might be popping up in or as which character.
1: And I also reserve the right since I'm casting this thing. I can change these roles at any time. B... The villain of the piece is going to be played by James Franco, Jan's parents, Bob and Marianne. I know you're waiting for it. This is
0: the one I'm most interested in.
1: I got a good one for you for Bob. Bill
0: Irwin. Oh, gross. That guy drives me nuts.
1: That's why I picked him, and because I love him. And Cynthia Nixon is Marianne.
0: Ooh, that would be pretty good, actually, now that you say that.
1: I think that's a good combo.
0: What about B's creepy brother, who knew he was doing this stuff all along? Do you have anybody for that?
1: Dog the Bounty Hunter.
0: (laughs) Perfect. And on that note, thank you to everyone for your questions. (laughs) You really do know how to put a button on things. I can say that for sure. Sincerely, though, thank you to everyone that contributed questions to this. We hope it was illuminating, or at least fun. I know I had a good time. How about you?
1: I had a great time. I kind of feel bad, though, because... Bee's brother wasn't that bad. Maybe Richard Dreyfus instead if I'm trying to resurrect him.
0: Split the difference. Mickey Rourke.
1: (laughs) That that does seem pretty good.
0: Just a reminder, if you ever have something that you're curious about, send it along. We don't have to wait a hundred episodes to satisfy whatever curiosity you might have. We're good about responding on social media and answering emails, so if you have a question, ask away. I did all the housekeeping in part one, so I won't duplicate that here. Instead, I will just say thanks for the support for telling people about the show and for how cool you've all been for the last 100 episodes. It's been a really fun time and we appreciate all of you a great deal.
1: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 25th frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.